Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's Old Testament lesson is taken from Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord said to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Will you discredit my justice? Will you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud the faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the loving God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have had their say. So has Job. So has Elihu. And now Job will get the very thing he has been demanding 
and that is an audience before God. But when God speaks to Job, things will be much different than what Job was expecting. There will be no formal indictment with charges for Job to answer. Nor will the Lord give Job a detailed response to his list of questions, nor respond to Job's specious uh, charges that somehow or another Yahweh has not treated him fairly. Instead, it is God who will cross-examine Job through a series of questions designed to teach Job true wisdom. And in the end, Job will not only be much wiser, but Job will be humbled. And while at the same time, be assured of God's favor toward him, even in the midst of this trial by ordeal, which now blessedly comes to an end. Now we move to the climax of the book of Job when God speaks to Job from the midst of the whirlwind, in the midst of the great storm. And at long last, we get an answer to that question which has dominated this entire story so far. Why do the righteous suffer? More specifically... Why does Job suffer? The answer that Job receives from God is not one that Job expects nor necessarily even likes. In fact, some would not consider Job's, uh, the Lord's words to Job an answer at all. But in Job 38 through 42, we discover what God means when he says in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And in Psalm 145 and Isaiah 40, where we read that God's greatness, no one can fathom. In our text this morning, God condescends to teach Job that God's thoughts, his ways, his greatness transcend anything that humans can think or imagine. And as a result, Job will be thoroughly humbled and transformed in his thinking before in his grace God restores to Job all of those things that had been taken from him during this trial by ordeal, which is now blessedly completed. Now, as the final section of the book of Job unfolds, we need to notice that God's appearance to Job is an act of grace. Instead of coming to Job in judgment and confronting him with a list of his sins or rebuking him for his thoughtless questions, God now takes Job to the school of wisdom, the primary entrance requirement of which is a diploma from the school of suffering, which Job now already has. The Lord will teach Job true wisdom through a series of rhetorical questions, a process designed to remind Job that the creator and sustainer of all things has now graciously drawn near to Job and speaks to him about the nature of the world and his lordship over every square inch of it. Yes, God is still on his throne despite all that Job has feared, despite that feeling he's had that he's been abandoned. And since God who creates all things and rules them and governs them now graciously appears to Job from the midst of the storm, Job is instantly assured that everything is okay despite his present circumstances. Knowing that God is not angry at him assures Job that it no longer really matters what happens since the very presence of God means that all is well, and it puts all things, even Job's suffering, into proper perspective. 
Now, lest we forget, God has been graciously preparing Job for this transforming moment all along. Job has come to see that none of his three friends possess true wisdom. It could be said and probably should be that these three well-intended men only darkened the way of understanding. And Job's ability to quickly silence them showed that he was indeed on the right track. But his increasing pride and his conceit in his effort to vindicate himself showed that he too was not yet ready to receive divine wisdom. It is not until the speech from Elihu that Job began to realize that he had gone too far in his demands to be vindicated. And it is Elihu who, by humbling Job, actually prepares the way for the Lord to come and speak to Job from the midst of the whirlwind. Now, given all that Job had been through without such preparation, Job surely would have been overwhelmed by the Lord's approach. And now Job is simultaneously humbled and yet assured of God's favor. Now, we also need to keep in mind the nature of the events revealed in the prologue, that is, in chapters 1 and 2. It was the Lord himself who summoned Satan and called his attention to the Lord's righteous servant, Job. And so now God comes to Job also in the form of a challenge, this time through a series of questions. And the irony in all of this is that God confronts both Job and Satan with his wondrous works. Job himself is a work of divine grace through which God has issued this challenge to Satan. You see my righteous servant Job? There's no one else on all the earth like him. God's challenge to Job is to consider his wondrous works, and that's the means by which God's work of redemption will be perfected in Job. And this enables the righteous servant to triumph over the devil in the midst of this trial by ordeal. And in the end... Job will bow his knee willingly and gladly before his creator and praise his name. He will not curse God as Satan has predicted. And in the end, Job will learn true wisdom. Now Job's ordeal also prefigures the coming of Jesus Christ who will be truly righteous and perfectly obedient and who will finally and totally defeat Satan when he too is afflicted with grief at the hands of sinful men and women. Throughout the book of Job, we find a fundamental truth of redemptive history being set forth in type and shadow, that someone must fulfill all righteousness and then offer a full and perfect satisfaction for human sin in order to undo the works of the devil. And Job's obedience, of course, does so in a very provisional and limited way, but the suffering and struggling Job who seeks to find wisdom, he becomes a type of the greater Job. Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God incarnate. Now in Job chapter 38, verse 1, through Job 40, verse 2, and you need to be taking out your Bibles and turning to Job 38, God delivers his first challenge to Job, which is followed by Job's response in chapter 40, which in turn is immediately followed by a second challenge from God to Job in Job 40, verse 6. And so as you turn your Bibles to Job 38, we come to Yahweh's first speech to Job, beginning in chapter 38, verse 1. Now the story of Job has been building to this dramatic moment all the way from chapter 4 on. We have heard that 
three cycles of cruel speeches from Job's friends who, because of their faulty understanding of the principle of divine retribution, which is that God must punish all sin, they were forced to accuse Job of having sin. And we've also heard Job's very poignant and heartfelt complaint in chapter 3, along with the series of responses from his friends, and then the increasingly defiant and self-righteous speeches from Job in chapters 26 through 31. Finally, Elihu comes, and he speaks as a prophet, and in effect, it's Elihu who prepares the way for the Lord to come and speak here now at the end of the book. But recall that in the midst of Elihu's speech in Job 37, verses 1 and 2, it was Elihu who declared, At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth before spending two full chapters in Job 36 and 37, just pouring out this heartfelt praise for God. And when Elihu comes to the end of his speech, we read in Job 38.1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Beloved, the way has been prepared for the Lord to come. The human quest for wisdom has come to a pitiful end. And now the Lord instructs Job in the way of true wisdom, and Job will never be the same again. Now, whenever there is an appearance of Yahweh in the Old Testament we call a theophany, it's always accompanied by physical manifestations. In this case, a storm in the NIV. And it's these images to which the author of the book of Hebrew appeals when he speaks of God, as we saw in our New Testament lesson, as a consuming fire. Now, both upheaval in the natural order, uh, this great upheaval in the natural order not only indicates that God is present, but it says to us that this is a significant moment in redemptive history, and we should listen to the revelation that is about to follow. Now, let us also not forget that it was a windstorm that took the lives of Job's children. So the reference to the storm is perhaps intended to remind us that nothing comes to pass apart from the will of God, even those windstorms that took the life of Job's family. Now in verses 2 through 3, the Lord issues a challenge to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, since we read in Job 42, verse 7, that Job spoke correctly about the Lord throughout this ordeal, the Lord's rebuke of Job is based on the fact that Job spoke of things of which he did not know. Job spoke in ignorance about the plans or the counsel of God. The creature has no right whatsoever to criticize the Creator, especially when the creature can only speak from ignorance about the mysterious ways of the sovereign God. Now, the Lord's command for Job to, break himself, to brace himself like a man is an image taken from the ancient uh, sporting world of belt wrestling, in which the winner was able to either remove off the body of his opponent his belt, or else put the guy in such a massive wedgie that he was forced to basically cry uncle. Now, this is not only an issue of athletic contest, a feat of strength, but the grabbing of someone's belt and the wrapped around their tunic was the means of subduing them, either in a court of law or when they'd been captured on the field of battle. And as a sign of ordeal here, the implication is clear. Job's trial by ordeal is finally going to be resolved. Yahweh is going to subdue Job. 
not to punish him, but as a means of ending this ordeal and teaching Job that which he's been seeking all along, which is true wisdom. Now we need to be clear that this contest is not merely about God's great power or sheer strength. The issue is not that God is bigger than Job and like a bully can do whatever he wants to Job. God never belittles Job in this process, given his greatness and Job's contrasting finitude. Job is not crushed, nor is he consumed by God's greatness. But Job is humbled, and there's a huge difference. The contest between God and Job centers in the revelation of divine wisdom, not in power for power's sake. God's wisdom throughout is presented like that of a skilled craftsman. God's wisdom is displayed on earth, it's displayed in the heavens, it's displayed in the animal kingdom, as seen in the mention of creatures which are beyond human control, but which in a sense are God's pets. While Job is not consumed by God's greatness, Job does become fully aware of how truly great God is and how sinful and weak men and women truly are. God will now give Job the very thing he lacks, wisdom. And such wisdom enables Job to accept the ways and the purposes of God, whatever they may be, even in the midst of his suffering. Now, because this ordeal centers in a test of wisdom, the Lord asked Job a series of questions designed to show Job his spatial and temporal limitations. Job will live out the average lifespan of a a man. He can only be in one place at one time. He can only understand a small fraction of the things that he observes. And his inherent sinfulness causes him to see things in a self-centered and distorted way. Job, in other words, is a sinful human. But God is not bound by time nor by space. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous in all his doings. And so reminding Job of this is the intention of this entire series of questions, which are not merely intended to offer a scientific explanation of origins, but which are designed to point out that Job was nowhere to be found when God was creating the heavens and the earth. And so the questions begin. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Beloved, Job was non-existent when God created the earth. God is without beginning or end, and he predates the earth by countless or endless ages. Now, the same thing holds true of the sea, as we see in verses 8 through 11. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your wave, your proud waves halt. Even the seas and their storm and tempest obey their creator, something as we've just witnessed in Florida that men and women are absolutely helpless to control. Furthermore, it's Yahweh who sets the day and night in place, as we see in verses 12 through 15. Have you ever, Job, given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upbraided arm is broken. 
You know, poor old Job, like the rest of us, must rise with the sun and sleep when it sets, but the Lord creates both the day and the night, and he's never slumbered nor ever been sleepy. Now, the limits of human existence become very clear in verses 16 to 18 when the Lord says to Job, Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. No, Job doesn't know any of these things. He's bound to one place. He lives a very short life. He's going to die at a particular time. Not so with the Lord who does all the things he now asks Job about in verses 19 to 21. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. And in the creation account, it's God who separates light from darkness. But Job was nowhere to be seen when God did this. Now, it's important to notice that Job is not being ridiculed by God, although it's easy to take these words as such. But it's important to notice here that God isn't being unkind when he shows a creature that they're a creature so that God might be God. God is not embarrassing Job. He's not showing Job up, but he is reminding Job of the difference between the creature and the creator and understanding the distinction between the creator and the creature is the beginning of all wisdom. Now the student Job is taken beyond day and night to weather and the heavenly bodies. As we learn in the creation account, it's God who rules over heaven and earth and rules them because he's created them. And yet Job has no control whatsoever over these things. Look at verse 22 and following. The Lord asked Job, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble or days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to Water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens and the waters become hard as stone when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you cut loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts in their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clouds of earth stick together? No, Job can't speak to the lightning, and no, Job has not hung the constellations in space. But lightning is the Lord's servant. The Lord spoke, and the constellations came to be. And so as we see at the end of chapter 38 and continuing on throughout chapter 39, the focus now shifts to the animal kingdom. Job is not in any sense able to govern or rule the creatures God has made. And while man was given dominion over the animals in Eden, 
This dominion was lost after the fall of the human race into sin. The point is that Job cannot possibly know the extent of animal activity, nor can he in any sense control the ways of the creatures. Job has not set their boundaries nor established their dominion. And so in Job 38, 39 and following we read, Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of lions when they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe hears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. The young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will, he rely on, will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Beloved, Job controls none of the creatures, and yet God ordains their every move. How much less can Job control the birds of the air? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Now as horses go, Job has no match for their great strength, especially those strong horses that are used by the armies of battle. Job, do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? His paws fiercely rejoicing in his strength and charging into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side along with a flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts. Aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. No, Job cannot control the horses. In verse 26, then the final scene shifts to the raptors of the sky. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom, Job, or spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command, Job, and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. His young ones feast on blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Job has been subdued. The first fall in the belt wrestling contest, this ordeal of wisdom is about to be decided. And the time has come now for Job to admit defeat, to cry uncle. And so in verses 1 and 2 of Job 40 we read, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Well, Job has no 
court, no choice but to cry out, I give up. Job's wisdom is no match for the wisdom of God. And so what follows then in verses 3 through 5 is that Job realizes that he can no longer dispute with God as he'd done throughout the latter stages of his dialogue with his friends, nor can Job demand to approach God as a prince as he had done in the closing words of his final speech. Job has lost the first round. He is humbled, but he's also assured. We read, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. But Job has not learned all that he needs to learn. He has lost the first fall in the belt ordeal, but the match, which apparently includes two falls, is not yet over. And so Job is ordered to take up the challenge again, to put his belt back on and go one more round with Yahweh. Now, Job's initial submission to Yahweh is the beginning of true repentance. But Job must now fully recognize the unreasonableness, indeed the sinfulness, of criticizing the Creator. And so in verses 6 through 7, the challenge is renewed. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. Put on your belt. I will question you and you shall answer me. And we can only imagine... Job's reaction to being told the news that the contest is not yet over. Now, throughout the opening verses of chapter 40, the focus is on God's sovereign work in redemption, often depicted throughout the Old Testament, as you know, as Yahweh outstretching his mighty arm, his mighty hand. Now, Job has no reason whatsoever to complain about how God does things. And yet, in an eerie way, as we've seen, Job's increasingly self-centered demand to be vindicated amounts almost to a form of self-deification, which is the inevitable consequence of human sinfulness. Because of human sin, God's purposes, which are always good and true, even if we cannot understand how or why, those purposes must somehow become subservient to the desires of sinful humans. And that is Job's great failure. Dare I say it, that is our great failure in times of suffering. And so in verses 8 through 14, the Lord says to Job, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Would you? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath, Job. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. You know, if at the end of the day Job can do what God can do, then the Lord will acknowledge that. But Elihu was right. Job has been seeking to justify himself rather than God. No, only God can justify himself because only God is without sin. Job the sinner has no right to question the holy God. Yahweh's second challenge moves in a very different direction. How would Job fare against various members of the animal kingdom? 
And so we'll go through this very quickly, but beginning in verse 15, Yahweh asked Job, look at the behemoth, which is probably a hippopotamus, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bringing their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he's not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan would surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? Job has no chance in a belt wrestling contest against the hippo. And it was common from, we know from art in the ancient world to depict animals in such contests with humans as a way to remind us of their strength. And yet Yahweh, unlike Job, controls every move of the hippopotamus. And the same holds true of the Leviathan, who is probably the crocodile. According to Job 41 and following, a very lengthy description of the croc, Job is asked, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? I guess Job hadn't seen Crocodile Hunter yet. Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you, can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Yes, Job, even Leviathan, even the crocodile who does the will of Yahweh, not the will of Job. Now, the crocodile is legendary in Job's day. I will not speak of his limp. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth ringed about with his fearsome teeth? He has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They're joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is as hard as a rock, hard as a lower millstone. And when he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his threshing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Irony treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him to be but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. 
He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think that the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all the proud. Now back in Job 40, verse 8, Yahweh asked Job, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Now we see, Job has certainly seen, that God's mighty power and his glorious works point beyond himself to the Creator. God alone is good. His perfect righteousness is displayed in the heavens and on the earth and in the creatures. If God can do all this and more, and since Job is bound by time and by space as well as guilty for his own sins as for the sins of Adam, then surely Job can now see the obvious. Job has no right to question the Almighty or his ways. And once understanding that to be the case, we can see that Job has learned true wisdom. And true wisdom tells Job that God is just in all his ways, even when Job does not understand, even when Job doesn't necessarily like the things that God is doing. The God who created and sustains and governs all things is surely mysterious to us. And yet, from the consideration of his works and his power and his glory and his splendor, we know that he is good. Now, it should be clearer that Job's reply to Yahweh's second challenge is quite the opposite of his heartfelt lament of chapter 3. Because having gained the wisdom he needed, Job now freely acknowledges his sin and going too far in an effort to justify himself rather than in giving glory and honor to God no matter what his present circumstances. Now what makes the words of Job 42 verses 1 through 6 all the more amazing is that Job is still suffering. Job has not yet received the explanation for the nature of his trial by ordeal. God has not given Job the answer to the question why that Job was expecting. The answer we are given is that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not ours. Do we hang constellations in space? Do we control the earth's creatures? That's the answer. And to people without faith in Jesus Christ, that's not an answer. But to people who know that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and was raised for their justification, that is the only possible answer. If the righteous one suffered to save us from our sins, then who are we to question God or to act as though God knows nothing of our pain or our suffering or our struggles because Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows. He's like us in every way, yet without sin. And so as a man who trusted in the God of the promised Job shows himself to be everything that the Lord had said of him, upright and blameless. Job is a justified sinner. He is a faithful servant of the covenant. And despite having lost everything, despite having gone through such horrible suffering, Job has refused to curse God. And now, having gained true wisdom and being assured of God's favor, what does Job do? He repents of his sin. And so we read in the first six verses of chapter 42, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. 
You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God has been with Job through every moment of this entire ordeal. But once God spoke to Job from the storm, Job now knows that to be true. He should have never doubted it nor demanded his own vindication, even though he had the legal right to do so. Job knows that nothing can thwart God's will. Job spoke of what he did not know. And now that he knows, he knows to keep silent. There's nothing left to say. For God in his grace has appeared to Job and reminded Job of the wisdom of all his ways. And all of this has been too wonderful for Job to grasp. He knows that God can do all things. He knows that the Lord's ways alone are righteous. And there's only one response. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Beloved, it is a fact of Scripture that there is no way anyone can encounter the living God without being undone by the guilt of their sin. At no time does God ever tell Job why he suffered. And yet, Job has his answer. For when God appeared to him from the midst of the storm, Job knows that God is with him. And for Job, that is enough. For even as Job repents, Even as Job despises his own actions, God is preparing to restore Job beyond his wildest expectations. And as we will see next week, God always keeps his promises. And so Job's story, just as our own, must have a happy ending. Why? How do we know this to be true? Because of the cross and the empty tomb. The Lord has given The Lord has taken away, and the Lord will restore. I know that the one who contends with the Almighty will be corrected. And in the end, like Job, we will together say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.